Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. This episode is powered by Poddex. Poddex are unique interview questions and episode starting prompts in the palm of your hand. So whether you're a new podcaster or existing broadcaster looking to grow your audience and have more meaningful conversations, you're going to want to check out Poddex. Now, if you want to get 10% off your order right now, you can go to poddex.com and type in coupon code, what's the code? Larry21. Yes, that's the code. Check out poddex.com. Take your podcast to the next level. Welcome to the Cinema Gold Show. I'm your host, Larry Lease. Today we're diving into the latest box office news, movie news, and streaming news from around the industry. Welcome to the Cinema Gold Show. I'm your host, Larry Lease. Today we're diving into the latest box office news, as well as giving our review of the latest episode of Obi-Wan Kenobi and Strange New Worlds, as well as our review of Jurassic World Dominion. But first, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Poddex, for sponsoring this episode. What is Poddex, you ask? That is a great question. Let me tell you all about them. Poddex are the hottest new tool for podcasters looking to have more meaningful conversations or gamify their podcast. Simply shuffle up, ask a question, and let the content roll. Get yours today at poddex.com and use the code Larry21 for 10% off your order. We also want to let you know that we have merch available. Right now we're holding a summer sale for 25% off with the code SUMMER25. Link to our store will be in the description. And now on to our first topic. Jurassic World Dominion stops to an impressive domestic opening. Audiences turned out in droves to see the latest dinosaur extravaganza, elevating Jurassic World Dominion, the third and final yeah, right, film in the Jurassic World franchise and fifth sequel to Steven Spielberg's 1993 blockbuster, Jurassic Park to an impressive $143 million domestically over its first three days of release. Pundits originally pegged Colin Trevorrow's epic to open around $124 million. Moviegoers were clearly eager to see their favorite prehistoric beast duke it out on the big screen once more. In terms of openings, Dominion falls far below 2015's Jurassic World, when it, which surprised everyone when it accrued $208 million over its debut weekend. And is off roughly 3% from Fallen Kingdom, which took in $148 million in June 2018. The grand opening proves this franchise is critic-proof. 
just 30% of critics awarded the flick a positive review. Worldwide, Dominion dominated with a massive $176 million, bringing its worldwide total to $389 million. IMAX accounted for $25 million of that global tally, including $6.3 million from China. Now we have to see whether word of mouth can propel Dominion to greater heights in the coming week. Elsewhere, Tom Cruise's hit sequel, Top Gun Maverick, squared off against the competition, raking in another $50 million down just 44% to bring its domestic total to $393 million. Globally, the action flick has amassed an astounding $747 million after just three weeks of release, despite losing many of its IMAX screens to the dinosaurs. Maverick should eventually overtake Mission Impossible Fallout to become Cruise's top global earner. Now the question is whether or not it can soar past the billion-dollar mark. Of note, the original Top Gun earned $357 million in 1986, which climbs to 924 million when adjusted for inflation. So looking at the top 10, at number one, like we said, Jurassic World Dominion. At number two is Top Gun Maverick with a total of 393 million. Number three is Doctor Strange with a total of 397 million. Number four is Bob's Burgers movie with a total of 27 million. Number five is The Bad Guys, 91.5 million in their eighth week. Number six is Downton Abbey with 40 million in their fourth week. Number seven, Everything Everywhere All at Once with a total of 63 million in their 12th week. Number eight is Firestarter, total at 9.2 million in their fifth week. Number nine is Sonic the Hedgehog 2 with 189 million in their 10th week. And number 10 is, apologize for butchering this name, but Antisudaraniki with $620 million in their first week. But now, of course, with our mention of dinosaurs, it's only fair to give our review of Jurassic World Dominion. Nostalgia has become such a common device that it could basically be media currency at this point. But there are some movies where it just works. Jurassic World Dominion is one such flick. Combining this generation's heroes with those of the enemies with a surprising amount of success. Now, Dominion is far from a perfect movie. But how low a rating can you really give it to a film that you had that had you grinning from ear to ear from start to finish? Let's get the weaker points out of the way before we dive in all the reasons this movie kind of rules. The score isn't anything to write home about. Anything that makes your ears perk up here is going to be thanks to homages and riffs on John Williams' original work. There are some odd character beats, particularly with Owen and Claire, where it kind of seems like neither Chris Pratt nor Bryce Dallas Howard wanted to be on set that day. And the character of Maisie, that's Fallen Kingdom's clone child, while admirably performed by Isabella Sermon, mostly just plays as a lack of faith in the audience to find empathy, without a human counterpart to the dinosaurs. While none of these are insignificant flaws, Jurassic World Dominion still manages to play with dino DNA in a way that keeps you excited and marks some notable improvements from previous entries. Most notably is the character of Claire Deering. She's given breakneck character changes between Jurassic World and Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, none of which are earned in any way that's meaningful. In Dominion, 
You get several moments that retroactively acknowledge the woman she was when she allowed Isla Nublar to fall on the woman she wants to be now that she sees the dinosaurs as actual living beings. Those living beings, by and large, look pretty great, too. Dominion does seem to lean heavier on visual effects than past entries. And there are a couple of rough-looking Atrociraptors. These new raptors are meant to play as more form and function. Their existence in the story is solely as quick-moving foils to Owen, Claire, and Caleb. So any distractions that may be presented by dicier-looking dinos is limited to a few second-long glimpses. Action-wise, everything else is thrilling. Raptor chases, dino-on-dino fighting, and the return of fan favorites like Blue, Rexy, and the Dilophosaurus. And don't worry, those raptors are the only dinosaurs who look a little funky. Jurassic World Dominion may be leaning heavily into nostalgia, but every single one of its newcomers is an impressive introduction to the franchise. That new edition of Ramsey Cole couldn't be couldn't be more here for Dewanda. Dewanda Wise's cargo. Pilot Kayla Watts, each one of them is invaluable to the story. With Kayla showing up, Owen's machismo with ease and Ramsey showing, well, we actually can't tell you that because it's kind of a spoiler. But rest assured that he's imperative to the storyline and it's fun to boot. Blue's baby, Betta? Was this baby dino created solely with the intention of selling toys? Probably. Is she an exciting and incredibly cute new addition to the Jurassic Park dino pantheon? Yes. You can put her plush right next to your baby Yoda and baby Groot toys. Betta and Atrociraptors aren't the only new prehistoric players here, either. We see realistic versions of several of the dinosaurs. And a surprising new bio-threat is introduced that ends up ultimately competing with the dinosaurs. For the biggest current threat to humanity's survival as a species. All of this takes us to what had most fans hyped for Jurassic World Dominion to begin with. The return of the big three, Sam Neill, Laura Dern, and Jeff Goldblum, all make their homecoming as Doctors Alan Grant, Ellie Sattler, and Ian Malcolm. In said return, it's as delightful as one would expect after missing them together on screen for nearly 30 years. More importantly, though, is the fact that their presence in the world franchise isn't shoehorned. The writers didn't think of some hammock reason for Claire and Owen to go to any of the three for help, Instead, their paths cross in a very organic manner that easily justifies everyone's presence in the story. No one's trading their character goals for anyone else's, and they all play a part in saving our world while doing our best to keep the dinosaurs' humanity as brought back as safe as they can. Jurassic World Dominion doesn't tie any bows on the fact that dinosaurs are now an ever-present challenge in our world, nor does it believe in its audience's intelligence enough to explore that complicated of a story. Honestly, Jurassic World Camp Cretaceous does a better job with such themes with its long-form narrative. That's a warranted frustration with the continuation of the franchise, but Dominion still has enough going on to keep it both exciting and fun for audiences. The film's successful marriage of hardcore nostalgia and new challenges works in its favor, and I can't wait to see what the franchise does next. Yeah, they say this is the end of the franchise, but I guarantee you, we're getting another film film or I could see a film or I could see 
a live action series for like Netflix or Hulu or Paramount. Any of the streaming services, honestly. But you're obviously here for my final verdict. So while Jurassic World Dominion is most certainly an imperfect addition to the Jurassic Park franchise, particularly with the rough presentation of some newer dinosaurs and its lack of faith in audience intelligence, it manages to introduce an impressive marriage between ever-present nostalgia and the constantly evolving challenges of having prehistoric creatures roaming free in our world. Characters new and old keep the film flying high, even if some of the Claire and Owen stuff make the plane's engine sputter now and again. Let us know in the comments section below, what did you think about the latest chapter in the franchise? And also, let us know, what was the best Jurassic Park movie? Jurassic Park? Uh, the Lost World Jurassic Park? Jurassic Park 3? Jurassic World? Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom? Let us know. And now on to, without further ado, Obi-Wan Kenobi Episode 4 Review. After some empty-looking landscapes last week, Star Wars back to the thoroughly convincing science fiction hallways in Part 4 of Obi-Wan Kenobi. The setting certainly helps add tension to an episode that fizzles a bit emotionally in the second half. But overall, Ian McGregor continues to prove himself essential to the galaxy far, far away, as the show reaches the final stretch. Leia has been captured by the Empire and brought to Fortress Inquisitorius, a name at least one person says with a very straight face. To rescue her, Obi-Wan and Tala enlist the help of the proto-rebels on Jabim, including an operative named Roken. Fans hoping for more Legends canon tie-ins on the planet won't get them here. Instead, Kenobi sees only a few rooms in the base and the inside of a back-to-tank. While healing, he relieves, or relives excuse me, his duel with Darth Vader whose parallel healing bath provides yet more highly effective angst as these estranged brothers share the pain of burning alive. Kanon Tala sneak into the fortress using her officer clearance codes. Meanwhile, Reva interrogates Leia, who resists the third sister's attempts to both threaten out of patience. Reva sends Leia to an interrogation room for physical torture. Plus, does something we later realize is planting a tracker on Leia's droid. Before Leia can be hurt, though, Obi-Wan finds his way into the room, while Tala stages a fake confession to distract Reva. The Inquisitor isn't buying it, but the good guys keep running her around with distractions, this time Obi-Wan drawing the attention of stormtroopers. Obi-Wan uses the Force to get the good guys out of a flooding underwater tunnel. At the last minute, just as our heroes are surrounded by the might of the Empire, the crew from Jabim swoops in to save the day, losing one of their pilots in the process. Part 4 never quite returns to the potent mix of history, character, emotion, and world building provided by that opening back to scene. At least it's using the back to tank to much better effect than the Book of Boba Fett did. While I'm not particularly interested in ranking the TV shows, especially two with such different lengths, Kenobi does pull off its Imperial base infiltration sequence a bit more competent competently than the one in The Mandalorian Season 2. And this episode has plenty of confidence. Director Deborah Chow, cinematographer Chung Hoon Chung, and the rest of the crew go off when it comes to the episode's lighting. 
Every scene in which Obi-Wan ignites his lightsaber casts beautiful neon glows and shimmering reflections. They know they have a good thing going with the use of a lightsaber in the dark and use it to great effect in this episode. At one point, casting Obi-Wan as the monster in the shadows, taking down scared stormtroopers one by one. The water in this episode also looks great, full of greens and whites. The base itself doesn't quite feel like a real place yet, but it's getting very close. Look at that sea creature stuck to the door of the underwater entrance. It's almost impossible to imagine this show without Ewan McGregor. His performance is stellar. His expressions and body language alone, selling how haunted his character feels. But it's also his presence that makes a difference. He provides an effective visual bridge between the original and prequel trilogies. His costume, makeup, and effect all arguing against that much-discussed subject of Star Wars recasting. At the same time, it retroactively justifies putting him in as a younger Alec Guinness in the first place. That Mandalorian episode I mentioned earlier, forcing Din Djarin to take his helmet off near the end of that episode, helped the emotional arc land. Kenobi doesn't quite do that. By the time the green water started rushing to Fortress Inquisitorius, the script puts character beats aside in favor of action, sacrificing one of the charming proto-rebel soldiers to the cause doesn't raise the stakes for Obi-Wan or Leia personally enough. Tala mentions that Obi-Wan might have to forget some of his past to get Leia out alive, but the specter of Vader never really comes back to haunt him. Instead, Vader seems to have missed the whole adventure by a minute, appearing conveniently later to threaten Reva. The script does give the third sister more to work with. Moses Ingram nails a mix of threatening evil and almost intentional awkwardness as little Leia snarkily resists her interrogation. It's easy to believe that Reva is trying to get her own bitter self-sufficiency to sink into Leia, as if she believes it's possible to come out of this with the two of them as friends. Their scenes together needed to come off as frightening but not terrifying, revealing but restrained, and I think they worked. Although the show doesn't go quite as far as showing Leia, Leia, excuse me, Actually being tortured very effectively threatens her. The one-off rebels are also fun, a diverse band that manages some characterization in a few lines. Their inclusion at the end still took too much away from what could have been a major decision point for Obi-Wan. But Star Wars continues to excel at making you wonder what adventures the minor characters have just have just off screen. Tala uses her Imperial air of authority to bluff her way inside the base. Her efficiency and trained refusal to take no for an answer are fun to watch. However, I wish the script provided some more specificity as to when and why exactly she became disillusioned about the Empire. Indira Varma has two potential traps to fall into, generic Imperial and generic fierce person, and wavers around them in this episode. It's fun to watch her use what the Empire taught her against it, though. Vivian Lyra Blair continues to shine her own royal trained authority first delighting and then breaking. I don't think it strains belief that a smart, extraordinary 10-year-old who's been aware of her own importance all her life would do or say anything she does here. This does circle back to my major letdown about this episode, though, with Leia taking Obi-Wan's hand at the very end in one of those understated moments with which Star Wars tends to handle operatic grief. I'm thinking in particular of Leia comforting Luke after Ben's own death and a new hope. And the way Leia is never shown mourning her destroyed home planet. 
This episode, like the saga as a whole, excels at bringing different characters, action, heavy plot threads together into a whole that progresses both plot and character beats. But when it has to drop something, it drops the ladder. Let us know in the comments section below what did you think about this episode of Obi-Wan Kenobi. And hey, before we move on, give us a thumbs up if you like the video, subscribe to the channel, and hit the bell no notification button to be notified of future videos. And now, episode 6 of Strange New Worlds. One of the best things about Star Trek Strange New Worlds is the way that it completely blows apart the idea that week-to-week -week episodic television can't be as deep, or nuanced, or emotionally impactful as more serialized stories with season-long arcs. In fact, I'd argue that even though Strange New Worlds has self-contained adventures that take place in each episode, it is also telling plenty of meaningful long-term character stories at the same time. The biggest and most obvious is the fate of Captain Pike whose radiation, disfigurement, and paralysis won't even occur for another decade, but still colors his day-to-day -day life thanks to the vision he saw of his own future. Deciding who he'll be in the face of that foreknowledge is now essential. Pike's life work in Strange New Worlds will have to figure out how to tell stories about his character that reflect that inner struggle without getting either repetitive or overly saturated about it. Liftus, where suffering cannot reach, is the first predominantly Pike-focused episode since the series pilot, and is an hour. And is an hour that sees the captain not only truly fail for the first time, but face a serious and shocking betrayal from someone he clearly once cared deeply for. The hour also definitely reinforces why Pike is always going to be doomed, and reminds us as viewers why we shouldn't wish him otherwise. Because even if Pike's future somehow isn't written in stone, it is irrevocably tied to who he is. And a man he will never put his own life ahead of those, ahead of those in his care. This episode... This episode sees the star Enterprise... On a cartography mission to the Magellan system, a star cluster on the edge of Federation space that Pike himself once visited a decade earlier as part of a rescue attempt. But when the crew answers a distress call from a Magellan ship under attack, he's reunited with an old flame, and his crew finds themselves charged with protecting an important child from a kidnapping plot. Though the alien race was offered Federation membership, they declined it, preferring to keep their own customs and ways private. Alora, now a Mahjalan leader in her own right, oversees a being known as the First Servant, a holy child chosen by lottery to embody the maximum of their people. Science, service, sacrifice. Though no one is ever too specific about what exactly any of that means. According to the Magellans, the First Servant's imminent ascension will usher in a new era for their planet and allows them to continue to live the way they do, complete with luxury floating cities and highly advanced medicine. Given the constant googly eyes she and Pike make at each other whenever they're in the same room, it's clear he's not super interested in what any of this really involves on a larger cultural scale. It's amazing it takes the two until the episode's midpoint to hook up.
After all, Starfleet captain falling for a pretty, if slightly manipulative, alien lady? It's a common enough tale in the Star Trek universe. The addition of pre-existing love connection between them makes this a little sweeter and generally less uncomfortable than some of the original series relationships we see Kirk engage in. Yet, Alora's presence isn't really about the romantic relationship, however you choose to define it, or about simply providing a reason for Anson Mount to take his shirt off. It's actually another surprisingly powerful window into Pike's emotional journey and the weight of the secrets he carries. The bulk of the episode involves a complicated plot in which the Enterprise crew is charged with helping keep the First Servant alive until his Ascension Day. And though the episode drags out some of its more obvious revelations, of course, it wasn't actually strangers trying to kidnap him, and duh, Laura was lying about something. The twisty plot is full of tension and genuine stakes. I'm sure no one was surprised when it turns out that the Enterprise didn't really accidentally kill a child, but I also doubt anyone expected that world turn around and sacrifice the boy almost immediately anyway as the first servant's body is literally turned into the battery which powers the bulk of the technology. To be fair, this is pretty grim storytelling for a Star Trek series, but perhaps necessary reality check after this first run of Strange New Worlds episodes, which generally involved happy endings, daring escapes, and hijinks all around. Not every story can end well, and not every alien race will be good, at least not in the way that we understand the concept. The fact that Pike... <clears throat> the fact that Pike, who so desperately wants to do something to help upend a civilization that literally powers itself with the lives of children, has no jurisdiction to do anything at all, is frustrating in a way that feels almost painfully realistic. Perhaps Pike's constant desire to tell all and sundry about his destiny of suffering and physical agony reflects his need to believe in the possibility of changing it. If he tells enough people about the future he saw, it will force that future to change somehow. Or if he tells the right person, he'll find the one that can fix it. But the fact that the first non-Starfleet affiliated person he tells turns out to be the leader of a culture that powers its own comfort through child sacrifice basically affirms why Pike, perhaps the brightest most empathetic figure in the Star Trek canon at the moment, is never going to turn away from the future he saw on Borath, no matter how much some of us might wish he would. I'm actually going to... This is actually surprising, but I'm going to rate it 5 out of 5. Let us know in the comments section below what did you think about this episode. And of course, uh, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Just search Cinema Gold Show. And as, well, as always, you can support the show by buying us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash cinemagold. Your support helps the channel grow, upgrade our equipment, bring in new hosts, pay them, and create new shows, and eventually take the show on the road. We would love to um, broadcast from D23, um, Comic-Con, uh, New York Comic-Con, and with your support, we can make that happen. As always, thank you so much for watching and listening, and we will see you next time. You have been watching the Cinema Gold Show. Follow us on Twitter at Cinema Gold Show. Find us on Instagram at The Cinema Gold Show. 
and on Facebook. Facebook.com slash The Cinema Gold Show. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.